On September 19th, less than two weeks ago, at the time I'm recording this, the Azerbaijani military launched what it called an anti-terrorist operation in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, the home of the unrecognized Republic of Artsakh. The move came several months after activists, apparently supported by Baku, set up camp and started blocking the Lachin Corridor, a mountain pass that was essentially Nagorno-Karabakh's one lifeline to Armenia and, by extension, the outside world. The roadblock limited access to essential goods and services and created a humanitarian crisis. Following Azerbaijan's latest military measures, however, the region's separatist government has surrendered outright, agreeing to dissolve itself before the year's end. What was basically a blockade is now an exodus, and more than 70% of the region's ethnic Armenian population has already fled to Armenia. That's more than 84,000 people, and that's in less than a week. Nearly all 120,000 Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh could end up refugees abroad. As this tragedy has unfolded, roughly 2,000 Russian peacekeepers have stood by and done virtually nothing. On September 20th, a day after Baku's anti-terrorist operation forced the capitulation of Artsakh, thousands of people crowded the Russian peacekeepers' base at the now-defunct Stepanakart airport, hoping to catch an evacuation that didn't really begin for another four days. So many people showed up that a lot of them ended up sleeping in tents or cars. Almost three years ago, in November 2020, a Moscow-brokered ceasefire agreement gave hope that the ethnic cleansing now unfolding who rejects that term and says this is all just voluntary migration. But there was hope then that today's ethnic cleansing might be avoided, or at least delayed a bit longer than this. So, what was this peacekeeping deal? What is Russia's capacity for peacekeeping? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. And it's hard to imagine a better expert on Nagorno-Karabakh and Russia's peacekeeping mission in the region than my guest this week, Crisis Group's senior analyst for the South Caucasus region, Alessia Vartanyan. Alessia has worked on conflicts in the South Caucasus for more than a decade, focusing on security issues in Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, with a particular focus on the breakaway regions of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and, you guessed it, Nagorno-Karabakh. And that's where our interview starts. What are or what were the parameters for Russia's peacekeeping mission in this region? And given what's happened in the last few weeks, what's the future of Russian troops on the ground in Azerbaijan and perhaps in Armenia as well? Nagorno-Karabakh is the only place in this uh, post-Soviet countries where we had a conflict, but we didn't have any kind of Russian military presence. There were Russian military or like peacekeepers or like people in Russian military uniform present in Abkhazia, in South Ossetia, in Transnistria, in one form or another, right? Uh, so Nagorno-Karabakh, although with us like the first uh, conflict that started emerging, when the collapse of the Soviet Union was happening, you know, the Russian, Russian military never really had their foot on the ground. And then I understand this has been one of the main interests and goals for different Russian officials and representatives for many years. So they always 
we're looking for having with primary role of those who are present on the ground. And then there were kind of different ideas because, you know, throughout always kind of periods since the, the beginning of the 1990s until with 2020 work, when we, we saw the Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh, during that time, there were several peace plans, you know, different discussions. So, I mean, there were always considerations about having some peacekeeping force on the ground. And Russia was always suggesting that it was the one <laughs> to, to have the presence. It's also important to note that there was not really much appetite from many others to have the presence on the ground. So sometimes people considered like having a Russian dominant mission, but with some others included. But even if they were the ones to have, let's say, the helmets of the UN or the OSCE, still kind of people uh, mainly thought that, yes, with it will be still kind of Russia leading the force. Is it still fair to say, even now, that Russia is the only country interested in having troops on the ground in this region, or has Russia also become reluctant now? Because the way the peacekeeping operation unfolded in Nagorno-Karabakh, it would seem that, that Moscow was never that keen to get too involved here. You know, the only other country that ever really got some primary interest in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, it was always Turkey. Yeah, so... Other than that, with two countries, Russia and Turkey, we didn't really see much appetite of getting with much involved. So there were like a different discussions, different formats discussed, like monitors or kind of people with the guns or mixed or police forces and all of that. But that was mainly about Russia, I should say. And then Russia has been traditionally considered, but it also had an interest. So when it happened in 2020, it was in a way for those who have been watching with conflict or working with conflict, that was not really a big surprise that we got the Russian peacekeeping force. There were several things from the very beginning that uh, raised concerns. So one is the number, less than 2,000. The second was also what they were to have for them. It was kind of only for self-defense, you know, like uh, all all the guns and all the military vehicles that they were to have. It was only for self-defense. But the, the third thing came a bit later. It was about the issue of mandate. So the Russian peacekeepers, they started their mission in Nagorno-Karabakh only based on the ceasefire statement. And then there was just kind of a couple of sentences <laughs> there, you know. And then usually for any normal peacekeeping mission, you would have like a more detailed mandate that would prescribe, you know, like what the Russian, what the peacekeeper will be doing, you know, what application they have what happens in case of a crisis and all these things. It's like a normal thing. And then Russia had two choices. So one of them, and I really don't understand why they didn't do that, because it could make their life so much easier. And I should say the situation now here in this uh, in the region uh, could be much better. It, they could go to the UN Security Council and then to get their blessing and support. I remember with times uh, right after the 2020 war, Everyone in the world, they were also terrified of what happened, but also they felt that they maybe didn't like really the way it ended with Russia kind of brokering the ceasefire, you know, and, but at the same time, I didn't really see much appetite of people getting very much involved, like looking into what additionally can be done and all of that. So in a way, Russia at that point, and look, I mean, we're talking about the period 
before the Ukraine war. So Russia could profit from the support from others at the UN Security Council, but they decided not to do that. And I think one reason for that is because they were still, they wanted to be the only. The second, I think they didn't really fully get the support from Baku for having any additional international presence or kind of involvement. And then the third, they probably didn't care. <laughs> they just kind of thought that they have this bilateral deal with Baku. Turkey is present there It's with its monitoring center. And that's it. You know, it will be fine. So is this has it basically the surrender of Nagorno-Karabakh? Is that a big, has that done a lot of damage to Russia's reputation in the region? Like did they basically abandoned Armenia and they gave in to Azerbaijan? And is that the fallout here or is it something else? They did not abandon Armenia. The Russian peacekeepers are present in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an enclave that has always been legally part of Azerbaijan. So the Russian peacekeeping mission, it was in, formerly it was in Azerbaijan. What happened is that the Russian peacekeepers that in 2020 gave a hope to those in, in to the local resident that there will be life uh, and then possibility to continue living there. They now, they just now frustrated everyone, I would say. Everyone is angry. Even the like the mass pro-Russian people in Nagorno-Karabakh, they have been cursing Russian peacekeepers all these days. And some people who were on the ground, they told me all of the stories how the Russian peacekeeper, just like a 20 minutes before the fighting started, they started packing and leaving to their key compounds. So for the locals, it's a clear treason. And that left them, you know, one-on-one -on -one with Azerbaijani forces. And there was no chance that uh, the locals could win that fighting. The other thing there is that Okay, Russia has a limited presence of the peacekeepers. They were definitely not there to defend anyone and not to get the fighting. If you even if you kind of take aside the fact that, you know, who was representing it, but the main power and the main kind of, you know, force behind the Russian peacekeepers, it was coming from the fact that it got the backing of Moscow. And then Moscow got is the most influential regional power in the South Caucasus. Well, at least it has been so far. And everyone understood that it's not about with guys in military uniform in Nagorno-Karabakh. The moment something was to start, it will be Moscow that will get involved. And that did not happen. So when people speak about uh, Russian peacekeepers, those who are coming from Nagorno-Karabakh right now, and almost all of them are coming, yeah, I mean, the whole region is now becoming empty. Yeah, they are all cursing them. I haven't heard a single person expressing any kind of sympathy to the Russian peacekeepers. Those in Armenia, they watch it and then they understand that they can be the next. They also understand that there are those now in Moscow who are producing with statements against the Armenian leadership who are calling for toppling the prime minister, who are asking for the rallies. Sometimes you get an impression that they in Moscow wanted more than those in Armenia because I have been here for the whole week, you know, since the beginning of the military operation. And I could observe street protests, street rallies. And from the very beginning, it was clear that people don't really have an appetite to get into something that can destabilize the country even more. So if you ask me with kind of big question the, from the very beginning that you posed, what will be the future of Russia here in the region? 
I can tell you that I don't know, but it's definitely gonna evolve. And I'm coming from Georgia. I have been living there for more than half of my life. And I remember how the Georgian society at some point just realized that they don't trust Russia anymore. And then Russia became an enemy to them. And no matter whether next governments they were more pro-Russian or less pro-Russian, you always kind of have a society that is not just skeptical, but has a very negative feeling about Russia. I have a deja vu feeling right now when I speak to Armenians here in Armenia, because they are asking very legit questions of what is the Russian stance and what is the Russian interest. And maybe if this is the case, then this is not our ally anymore. So you're saying that even, even if, is it Pashinyan, that's the prime minister of Armenia, even if the results of this conflict essentially lead to him losing power, not let's not say not in the revolution, but if like in the next elections or down the road, this damages him enough that he's out, he's out. You're saying that it's not like Russia will win, even though we are seeing a lot of Russian propagandists, even like Margarita Simonyan, who is herself Armenian, as I understand. She's been one of the most vocal, you know, anti-Pushinyan people in the Russian media. Russia. I'd like to express my own pain, my own feelings, and my connection to the tragedy that unfolded all in one day today, and express my condolences to the Armenian people. As for the people who voted for Pashinyan and for Pashinyan himself, these condolences don't apply to them because they have no right to call themselves the Armenian people. Nobody envies Judas, and his fate awaits you. And it seems as though, I mean, these talking points would suggest that Moscow thinks that if they can get Pashinyan out, that'll be good for their influence over Armenia. But you're saying that whether or not that happens, the events in Nagorno-Karabakh have really hurt the perception of Russia as a partner or something like that. But look, I mean, Margarita Simonian, she is a Russian citizen and she has constantly, she has constantly said on air in public that she visited Armenia just twice right. and then this is not her homeland. Mm -hmm. So please. Okay. <laughs> on September 13th, just days before Azerbaijan would declare its anti-terrorist operation, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan said in an interview with Politico that Russian peacekeepers had failed in their mission, arguing that ensuring supplies of food and fuel to Nagorno-Karabakh was supposed to be in the sphere of responsibility of the Russian peacekeepers. Days earlier, Pashinyan told the Italian press that Armenia's overdependence on Russia for arms and ammunition was a strategic mistake. He expressed these frustrations amid training exercises that brought to Armenia 85 soldiers from the U.S. 101st Airborne Division and the Kansas National Guard. And as if cooperating with the Americans like this wasn't enough, Pashinyan's government also took steps toward ratifying the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which earlier this year issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. Alyssa told me how all this set the stage for Baku's endgame in Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, for my work, I have to speak to everyone, right? And then in the recent weeks and months, when, you know, we started kind of seeing with very interesting developments taking place with emotional statements between Moscow and Yerevan. Of course, I went and I spoke to some opposition people, people, and then it was clear to me that they are not stupid either. They understand that 
something really very big happened to the point that that will have a reflection, you know, on Armenia's coming years, I would say, you know. I remember, like, for example, one prominent Armenian opposition representative who told me that even if I come to power, I'm not going to be pro-Russian. <laughs> and then, and it's it was clear to me that on the one hand, with people, they understand the realities in the neighborhood. And the second, they saw that Russia is weak and even people like Pashinyan can get into arguments. And right now, after what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh and how Russia allowed this to happen, I can't believe that it will not have any kind of impact, even on the minds of these politicians who are now in a position and might have an ambition to come to power. In early August 2008, South Ossetian separatists breached a 1992 ceasefire agreement when they began shelling Georgian villages. These attacks led to return fire from Georgian peacekeepers and servicemen in the area, which Moscow used as grounds to intervene militarily, claiming that Georgia had attacked both Russian peacekeepers and civilians in South Ossetia, many of whom now had Russian citizenship. In the Kremlin's wording, this is how the peacekeeping operation transformed into a peace enforcement operation. So there's strong evidence that this was all just the pretext for a premeditated invasion. One of the one of the standout moments, I guess you could call it that, for Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh during this last, during this most recent escalation and conclusion, I guess, is that there was an incident on September 20th when I think four of them were killed. A crew was killed in its vehicle when it came under Azerbaijani fire, and this the incident was attributed to the fog of war. And I think Baku is if not apologized, at least said it was an accident. I guess that's an apology. The concept of Russian peacekeepers coming under attack was one of the, or if not, it was the premise for the war in Georgia, whereas here in Azerbaijan, it's just as a sort of incident. The different tolerances for coming under fire and letting it slide or deciding to embark on a whole war. Are these just political considerations that Moscow makes? Whether or not they're coming under fire, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. What they just they have a larger plan, and they'll use they'll use something as an excuse, or they won't. What, how? What's the best way to read these incidents? So you mentioned two incidents. I can add uh, a couple of more to that. Uh, throughout with like uh, with whole story, uh, since Russia started invasion of Ukraine, uh, we see Moscow that shows a surprising tolerance, you know, to everything that has to do with Azerbaijan. It's very clear that Russia does not want to get in any kind of fighting, any kind of confrontation other than Ukraine. Yeah, they are focused on their fighting going on there. They don't need to get into the war in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a big country. They have army. They have Turkey as an ally. You have to consider all these things. I mean, this is all that every single person can understand. On the other hand, indeed, there were some red flags. And even before this incident with the Russian peacekeepers in Nagorno-Karabakh last week, we had the situation when some Russian border guards were attacked. You know, for example, last year, a year ago, there was an escalation at the Armenian-Azerbaijani border, and the Russian uh, border guard compound was <laughs> destroyed with artillery, you know? And then what happened is that that was actually Armenia. <laughs> They spoke about this in, in media outlets, and Moscow did not really have an appetite to speak about that. I think it was in spring, 
a car of the Russian border guards again got shot by Azerbaijani uh, military. And again, there were just apologies and everyone forgot about this. There was an incident with the Russian peacekeeper inside Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, right at the front line. It was long before it was military operation that we saw yesterday, uh, last week, when Russian peacekeepers was shot and everyone was trying to <laughs> cover the story. <laughs> We'd never ever heard a single official statement by the uh, Russian defense ministry. It was again Armenian media and the local residents who spoke to the media and they said that, uh, hey, you know, this thing happened. So, yes, Russia has no appetite. I think we should have been a lesson to Yerevan already, you know, because there were a number of kind of red flags uh, that uh, were indicating that Russia was not to get into any kind of fighting, even when its own military were, you know, targeted. Did they, did they ever fire back? I mean, did they, I'm not sure what the rules of engagement were for these, for these peacekeepers, but you said earlier that both sides, or especially Armenia, was disappointed that they were, their arms were essentially just for self-defense. But based on these incidents, it sounds like they didn't even defend themselves. They just got shot up a few times and turn to Moscow, and Moscow is like, well, shit happens. <laughs> Look, uh, we have three types of Russian military presence uh, here between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So one is with Russian peacekeepers, and yes, they have guns only for self-defense, which is a kind of adopted rule. Even if we're Dutch peacekeepers with guns, they are supposed to use them only strictly for the self-defense. The second is we have Russian bodyguards along the Armenian-Azerbaijani border, and uh, Armenian-Turkish border, and also Armenian-Iranian border. Again, if they have any kind of guns, which is only for self-protection, where did you see border guards getting into fighting, except for some countries? And uh, the third is the Russian military. They are based at the military base here in Armenia. And then look, uh, again, till they get an order, they're not supposed to go out and start shooting. So, you know, if you look from this perspective, Yes, this is the case. You know, the, these guys were not to take their take out their guns and start shooting back, or I don't know, trying to protect any kind of Armenians running from bombardment coming from Azerbaijani army. But we all understand how it works. Yeah, army nowadays is not supposed to be there just kind of you know to fight. It's also continuation of diplomacy, it's continuation of politics. And in that sense, Moscow betrayed everyone. Yeah, I mean, they, at least with this how Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh feel, and then also with this what I'm hearing from Armenians in Armenia, they think that Russia greenlighted the military operation and Russia did nothing to stop it from happening. The, the words Russian peacekeepers, usually that's like something, if you say, you're talking to people in the West, and you're like, well, you know, the Russian peacekeepers, the next thing is usually somebody laughs or, or kind of snickers or something. I mean, we've been talking a lot about Russian peacekeepers in Azerbaijan and in Armenia, or just Russian troops in general. What's your take on sort of uh, Moscow's peacekeeping record since the fall of the USSR? Because obviously the two other big peacekeeping operations, there's been one in Georgia that ended with war, or led to war, I guess. And then there's a long-standing one in Moldova and Transnistria. How do these compare? Like, is is there is there a good example of peacekeeping and a bad one? Or are they all bad? Are they all okay? I mean, what's your what, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, there is a concept of peacekeeping, right? I mean, all around the world, and then we think, you know, has been evolving. I, I, I'm the one who has been studying with peacekeeping in different kind of formats in different areas. I don't know whether it's interesting to any of the listeners, but what I can tell you is that with peacekeeping mission in Nagorno-Karabakh, in the very beginning, you know, right after the 2020 war, it was something that I would say an exemplary mission. It was a small number of people. They were doing a lot of work. They were trying to engage with everyone. Then Russia sent a lot of humanitarian aid, even agencies that were trying to help to the local people. There was a readiness to do the things that are not necessarily part of the mandate. Like, for example, they were escorting people to the farmlands. They were helping them to fix irrigation channels. They were trying to also help them to find missing people and all of that. And yeah, I mean, everyone was so happy, including on the ground. But, you know, in general, peacekeeping commission, no matter how many people you have or like uh, what it looks like, what, whether they have guns or not, it's success. It's coming from the trust and eagerness of the conflict parties to engage with it. And then the longer it went, and especially with Russia starting the invasion of Ukraine, the more we saw Azerbaijan trying to start in testing what the Russian peacekeepers were to do. Some certain escalations, some incidents started taking place, and the Russian peacekeepers were not showing any kind of resistance because, again, Moscow preferred not to interfere. Moscow preferred not to spoil its relationship with Azerbaijan. Moscow didn't want to fight in Nagorno-Karabakh. And then, so the longer it went, the less we saw Russian peacekeepers able to do anything on the ground. They were left without any kind of functions. They, no one cared anymore with them being present, for example, at some farming lands, uh, escorting the people who were trying to collect their harvest. Shooting still took place. You know, we at Crisis Group, we do like kind of working with the data. And I spent so much time like analyzing all different data pieces that the Russian peacekeepers were, have been putting out since the beginning of their uh, mission three years ago. And then it's clear, you know, that even when they started patrolling certain areas, knowing that, and they, they could see that there were like a clashes starting taking place, more incidents, like, a, you know, some tense situations. And then they traveled there every single day <laughs> for patrols and they report about it. And still escalations happened. And still we see Azerbaijani forces advancing and taking over the new territories. It was a clear signal that the Russian peacekeepers, they are not anymore the force that can be treated as something that can prevent or can somehow have an impact on, on the situation, on the stability on the ground. It, it has become clear long before with military operation. And I cannot imagine anyone from with the Russian peacekeeping mission who did not really understand that. If I, as a researcher, who was only analyzing with public information that they were putting out, if I could see it, then, I mean, with, with guys and who have a responsibility for their military, right? I mean, you, you should be still concerned about the success and kind of, you know, and you should be concerned at least for the safety of your military who are there. I'm sure they reported and they said that, look, this is the situation. We don't know how, what to do. I mean, Moscow did not really react. Instead, what has been happening is what we already discussed, is Moscow trying to find an excuse and to divert with 
kind of hold the blame on Pashinyan, Prime Minister Pashinyan and Armenia. So who exactly failed here? I mean, would you say that the peacekeeping operation, would you call it a failure or would you say that that the politics surrounding it are what collapsed? Because I know that you said earlier that peacekeeping is ultimately a sort of is an extension of diplomacy. It's not as though I mean, they're not there to like decide the, the victor of the war or anything. They're supposed to arrive after there's been some kind of, if not reconciliation, then at least ceasefire, end of fighting. But you're saying that the fighting came back and the peacekeepers, it was gradu- it was apparent even to you, not on the ground with a gun in your hand, but you, still could, you could still tell ahead of this that the conflict was returning, essentially. Whose fault is that? Is that Russia's fault? Or could they have done something differently to have prevented this in terms of peacekeeping? Or would that have required something else? We, in the end, are all in this uh, situation where when we find ourselves uh, failing, right? I mean, uh, there are long lines of cars that are, you know, coming from Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia and uh, people stand there for hours and they come with no hope that they can go back to Nagorno-Karabakh anymore. I mean, what other evidence do you need for the failure that uh, we all now ourselves finding. And even more, we all understand that with people who have a strong attachment to their homeland, they have a distinct language, you know, with us like an identity being Karabakh Armenian. It's different from being like ordinary Armenian from Armenia. They will have this kind of, you know, pain. And then this is probably just another cycle of this conflict. I mean, we have already seen in this conflict so many casualties, hundreds and thousands, I don't know, and then we all understand that with failure is is just kind of, you know, it's a beginning of another chapter that is most probably going to lead to another fighting, another another cycle of violence. So who, who has failed? We all have failed. Because on the one hand, there are those who are now suffering even more. There will be people who will be suffering in the future. And then there will be, again, people who will have to tackle it politically or like uh, militarily both here in the region, but also from outside. When you talk about another cycle of violence, do you mean that somewhere down the road, decades, centuries, whatever, Armenian or Armenians would try to like get this territory back? Or are you, or are you more concerned with Armenia in the near term losing more influence or even territory? Or I mean, what's the, what's the immediate concern? What's the long-term concern? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about both. I mean, certainly now Armenia finds itself in a situation when it still has its own conflict with Azerbaijan. There are some territories that are occupied by the Azerbaijani troops. No borders went through delimitation. Azerbaijan wants a special kind of transport corridor that would connect it to Nahichivan with the support of Turkey. So, I mean, there are many things that are still on the, on the table for the discussion, and they can provoke new tensions in the coming days, weeks, months. But I mean, in a longer perspective, you need to find a way to resolve the conflicts. And then in order to, to do that, you have to, have to consider the grievances and interests of uh, different sides. I, it's very difficult for me to imagine with 120,000 people, and there are many more, right? I mean, who became displaced in 2020, that for them just to forget about what happened, it will be very important also to continue watching what will be happening with the integration process of these people in Armenia. Armenia, a small country, very poor, has very bad experience of actually handling 
crisis situations like this. So most probably with people will continue suffering, you know, because they are now displaced and there will be issues with finding them a proper settlement and also integrating them and so on. I don't see them losing their identity. And unfortunately, that identity will now be closely connected to the fact that at some point, Azerbaijan started with military operation that led to their exodus, you know, from Nagorno-Karabakh. There will be this issue. And if I had anything to tell to Azerbaijani leadership at this very moment is to think right now, you know, and to start thinking about the future at this very moment and so that i mean now no one will think about going back but still kind of you know maybe in two three years there will be people who will want to go and uh, visit the graveyards of their families or the there are some very important cultural heritage you know uh, like monasteries uh, there in nagorno-karabakh they are very important they're like i don't know notre dame for france you know where they are the same to Armenians. People would want to go and see it. So maybe Azerbaijan should start thinking about how to accommodate these things. Another is these people are coming, but they, they are leaving behind their property. Yeah. So then they, they will want, uh, I don't know, they will keep it in their heads that uh, they had some apartments, uh, houses, some of these houses, they are like, they were built like by generations uh, in, in families. So these are the grievances that don't go away easily. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.